I want to invite you to open to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to finish this chapter, short little message. I, I think I, I preached just a little too long last week, and so I want to get, I want to, I don't know, just want to do a short little message this morning on prayer, kind of help you guys get centered on a potential New Year's resolution to understand prayer a little bit more than you do. 1 Kings chapter 18, and we'll pick back up in verse 41. Okay, God's word says this, Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And He said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. Our passage this morning returns to really the main theme of chapter 18. Whether you were here last week or or not, you, you may not remember that the point of chapter 18 is that God was going to send rain once again. And you see that in verse 1 of chapter 18. This lack of rain, it's good to remember, was not just God doing something for no reason. It was actually a judgment on King Ahab and a judgment on God's people. Ahab and, excuse me, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they had led God's people into the darkest and worst spiritual idolatry. In fact, Ahab was far worse than any of the kings before him. You see that in verse 30 of chapter 16. Instead of leading the people, instead of following God's word and obeying the word of the Lord and helping the people of God be committed to worshiping God the way that God determined, Ahab did the opposite. He led God's people farther away into a false religion. He led God's people into something called Baal worship, and that's a little bit foreign to us, a little bit strange. And so once again, Baal worship, this religion of the the pagans was, was their religion of choice. That was the religion that sort of surrounded the people of Israel, Baal worship. Instead of worshiping God, Israel had given themselves to worshiping Baal. You might wonder how in the world something like that happened. And interestingly enough, it's not actually the first time this has happened. Back in the book of Judges, we read all about Israel's failure to worship God. There, 
they were intended to drive out the, the people of the promised land that was theirs. They were not to embrace the gods of those people, of those who inhabited that land. And for the most part, those people were called Canaanites. And again, God's people and judges, they, they were instructed to drive out all the Canaanites, to get rid of them completely, to tear down their idols that were intended to promote Baal worship. And Israel failed to do that completely. They didn't tear down the altars. They didn't get rid of the Canaanites. Canaanites. And God had said in Judges chapter 2 that this failure will have serious consequences, that there'll be a thorn in the side of God's people. And their gods will, from that day forward, always be a snare to God's people. Baal was always going to be a temptation. Worshiping Baal was always going to be something that God's people in Israel would struggle with. Instead of trusting and following God, they were tempted to follow that Canaanite example. Here's why it was so tempting. They wanted to trust in the Canaanites' uh, strategy for surviving in that new promised land. That was new new land for Israel. They weren't really sure how to survive, how to grow crops, how to, how to live. And the Canaanites knew how to do that pretty well. And so Israel just jumped on board. Again, back in Judges, that's what Israel did. They, they farmed like Canaanites farmed. They lived like they lived. And eventually they worshiped Baal just like the Canaanites did. They were convinced by those people, by those Canaanites, that Baal could bring water and he could bring rain, that Baal really was the one who made sure that their crops grew so that they could eat and live and survive. They believed that that Baal would help them have children. And so it was so tempting for them. And as we fast forward hundreds of years, we find that it's still tempting Baal worship still a snare for God's people. Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of, of God's people of Israel here, they are you know, avid followers of Baal. So not only is it tempting, but it's also really popular. It's what everybody's doing. So God's word is being neglected and, and abandoned, and the cultural trend is is being embraced here in 1 Kings. God's people have totally forgotten. They don't know who the true God is anymore. They've neglected him and they've you know, buried the truth that it's God who brings rain. It's God who brings life. It's God who provides, God who sustains, and God who protects. As judgment, God announced in 1 Kings chapter 17 that there would be no more rain. Baal can't help you. Only the real God can help. And so a horrible drought had taken place. And God decided in chapter 18 that it was time to send rain once more and to prove that it was him and that he alone is God. And this has nothing to do with Baal. Last week, we looked at that little God contest, although it wasn't much of a contest at all. Baal was proven to be not real, a fake, a fraud, a sham. He couldn't do anything. God, through Elijah on Mount Carmel, basically called Baal's bluff. 
It was his turf, and yet God still won. God was outnumbered. He had all of the circumstances going against him. Elijah made it impossible for that altar to catch fire. Remember all the water dumped on it? And still God, not stopped by human means, proved that he is above the miraculous and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one true God. Not much of a contest, but a reminder of the access that God's people had to God, that the access that they had to God through that altar. Important to remember what that was all about. It was an opportunity for God's people to turn their hearts back to God. That's what Elijah prayed for in verse 37, and that's precisely what happened. Those who had neglected God realized once again, God is real. This is the true God. What are we doing with this Baal worship thing? And so verse 41 returns the reader really to the main theme of this chapter. This isn't about God proving that he's the true God at all. This is about God sending rain. An interesting little section here that has a lot to teach us if we're careful enough to read it. God will keep his word, which, you know, as he sends rain once more, we're used to that. We know that God keeps his word. God will showcase his grace as he often does. There's this interesting little lesson for us about prayer. As we learn from the prophet's prayer, prayer, one of those subjects that most Christians, I think, tend to feel like they could always learn more about. One that they maybe often feel convicted when somebody brings up that topic of prayer, that they don't pray enough. Even a young Christian, even a mature Christian might feel that way. They don't pray right or they don't pray when they should. They feel like they should pray more. Usually fitting for this time of year, also, as one year draws to a close and a, and a new one's about to begin, that people make resolutions about their spiritual disciplines. Most people say, man, 2024, I'm going to read my Bible so much more. Christians might say that. I'm going to spend so much more time in prayer this year. I want to do that. And I'm, of course, a fan of both those resolutions, but. In regards to prayer, it may be helpful for us to learn from Elijah this morning about the nature of prayer. It may help you think about your own prayer life or lack of prayer life. It may give you encouragement to pray more or pray at all. It may help you understand what prayer is all about, how to pray with direction, to have a better understanding of of what prayer is for, why it's so beneficial. If you have questions about prayer, then learn from Elijah here in the next few minutes that prayer is truly always profitable. And that's our big idea this morning. Prayer is always profitable. It's such a good thing, in other words, so helpful for the believer. We, of course, know that it's something that God expects. And we could chase that truth throughout the Bible, why God expects us to pray and how he instructs us to pray. But this morning, I, I want to stay focused on Elijah. 
man's perspective here, man's point of view on prayer. What can we learn <coughs> from <clears throat> Elijah about prayer this morning? Why is it so profitable? Let me give you just three things. Here's the first one. Let's start here. Number one, prayer is humbling. Prayer is humbling. Yeah, prayer humbles you. Why pray? Prayer humbles you. Verse 41, Elijah, just to remind us again, fresh off his big W over the prophets of Baal, he won, they lost. He's still giving orders, instructing the king what to do and tells Ahab, you need to go get dinner because the rain is coming. And Elijah seems to be like some sort of super prophet that were such a thing, right? If we're not careful, we can think he's maybe the hero of the story. Like Elijah is doing all these, you know, really miraculous things. It's, we might even think, you know, isn't he the one responsible here? Back in chapter 17, we may think Elijah kept that widow alive. Elijah brought her son back to life. Verse Chapter, or chapter 18, Elijah is the one who you know, challenged Ahab. He's the one who dug that pit around the altar. He's the one that called down fire from heaven. Elijah is the one who killed the prophets of Baal. On and on and on. And we start to look at this and think, Elijah is like this super prophet. And he did do those things. But of course, we know that he's not the hero. God is the hero. God is the one who's been acting. God is the one who's been working through Elijah. And Elijah knows that. Verse 42 says, Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he crouched down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. And I recognize that it doesn't say Elijah prayed, but he isn't sick. (laughs) He's not in that posture because he just got off Twisted Colossus at Magic Mountain. Like, he's in a posture of prayer. He he is in a a posture of intense prayer and also one of humility. Bow down before God. So just because Elijah was giving orders and, and was doing incredible things for God, shouting commands even. It doesn't mean he believes that he himself has any sort of power to do anything on his own. He is used to begging God for help. Elijah, in case you missed it, he begged God for that boy's life back in chapter 17. Last week we saw and we learned Elijah pleads with God for fire in chapter 18. And here in our passage, once again, Elijah is is seeking the help of the one who can actually help him. He prays for rain. He prays for rain to the God who he knows can actually bring it. Elijah, he may be a bold prophet, but only because he's confident in his God. Let me make it clear. There's no magic here. There's no power. Elijah isn't smart enough. He he isn't rich enough. He isn't popular enough to do any of this on his own accord. In no way does he think that he doesn't need God. 
He frequently resorts himself to, to humbling posture before God, to that humbling prayer-like posture. And that's what prayer does. Prayer reminds us that we aren't in control. Prayer reminds us that we have no power on our own. When we pray, we admit something crucially important. I have no ability to change these circumstances. I am praying to someone who does. Can't make someone feel better. We can't give someone a a job. Uh, We can't take away disease. We can't make anyone receive the gospel. We can't give life. We can't make fire fall from heaven. We can't make it rain. Only God can do those things. And when you pray for those serious things that happen throughout your life, you should be reminded of that. Prayer has a way of sending you to your knees, whether or not you actually pray on your knees. It's a a posture in your spirit. It's a reminder that I humbly come before a God who can help humbles you as the creation in the presence of your creator. It humbles you as the one with no power before the one who has all the power. Prayer should remind you that God is in control and you are not. Reminds you that God's plan is what matters and not your own agenda. It humbles you to confess your helplessness. That's what prayer does, and that's what we see even in the the posture of Elijah as he's on his knees in front of his creator, again begging the Lord to do something, knowing he has no power to do it on his own. So prayer is beneficial. It rightly humbles. It humbles you. And number two, prayer also aligns you with God's will. It aligns you with God's will. It's obvious that Elijah is praying for rain. That's what James says in chapter 5, and we'll get to that in a minute. But he's praying for that which God said he would do. I find that so helpful, don't you? So helpful to, to know that it's often been the practice of God's people to take God's promises and then pray for them. To take God's word and and what God says he'll do and then actually turn that into a prayer. God said he would bring rain, so Elijah prays for rain. We pray knowing that God's promises will come to pass. We align ourselves with, with what God's will actually is. That's why we're even fast-forwarding into the New Testament and some of those promises that God has made. That's why we pray for the Great Commission. We pray for those that we know and those that we don't to receive the gospel. We, we pray for the lost because we know that God desires that they come to saving faith. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And, and we pray for the return of Jesus, knowing that one day he will come back, establish his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. We pray as Jesus instructed us to. We pray to worship God. We pray to our Father so helpful that we pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done. Even in that, we get a a reminder to pray for daily needs and for forgiveness and to be freed from temptation to sin. Why? Because again, Jesus teaches us to pray that way. And Matthew chapter six, we pray in alignment with God's will. 
it's so helpful to see that that's been the practice of God's people for so long. That's exactly what Elijah's doing. He's praying in line with God's will. Let me also point out how God's answer aligns you with his will, especially in the timing of God's answer. As Elijah is praying, verse 43, six times he sends that servant to check on the weather. Any updates, any clouds, any sign of rain. And six times there's nothing. We don't really get hours and minutes here. We don't know the timing But we can understand something in it. Time is passing. God is delaying his answer. Servant reports time and time again, there is nothing at all. It's blue skies. You've been praying, Elijah. What happened to the way that God answered your prayer when you called for for fire from heaven? You prayed and and you barely said amen and that altar was engulfed in flames. What's going on? You can imagine the servant wondering that to himself. Like, what's the problem here, Elijah? What did you do? God answers fast sometimes and sometimes a delay. Elijah continues to humbly pray though and each time his servant checks that horizon, he receives God's answer. Nope, still nothing. God's answer is delayed. And before we get to that seventh time and the small cloud on the horizon, it's, it's good for us to pause and appreciate the mystery of prayer here, especially in the way that God chooses to answer. God can respond immediately. He can also delay his response. Spoiler alert, in chapter 19, just few verses later, verse 4, God will flat out reject Elijah's prayer request. As we'll see, that's a very good thing. But the point here isn't to highlight God's variety and creativity in the way that he might choose to answer our prayer. The reality here and the help here is for us to be okay with the mystery of how God does it. It's okay for us to, to, to know that this is the way God answers prayer. We embrace God's answer to our prayer with, with caution. A delay isn't bad. Delay isn't a rejection to prayer. And even when God says, no, it isn't bad, because it reminds us that he is God and that we are not. We may understand what's happening in our moment in time. I'm sure Elijah was ready for that rain to fall. But we can't possibly see the whole picture as God sees it. We're foolish and naive when we think that we know better, when we think our timing is better than God's timing. We think it would be so good for God to do this thing right now, to answer my prayer this way right now. And we don't understand why he would delay his response. Like a child who begs and pleads with their parents for a second dessert or more candy, child understands that it's good. (laughs) It tastes good. I want some. 
But of course, we know that the consequences for that decision later that night are not good for the kid or the parents. So it's easy for a parent to be tempted to give in and give that kid what he wants, but seeing a little bit more of the picture, we understand why a parent might say no. And it's really in a much larger scale. We need to approach God's answer to our prayers that way. Why the delay? I don't know, but I know it's good and I know it's right. Why would God say no? I don't know, but I know it's good and I know it's right. Sometimes you might pray for something and it is immediately answered and something else you might pray your whole life for. And you need to be okay with that. You need to be okay knowing that God's response is good and it's perfect. God is bringing his perfect will to pass, causing it to happen exactly as it should. And of course, that's a good thing. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's response is for your good. And even though I'm sure Elijah was questioning here a little bit, we can learn that that response from God is not wrong. Prayer humbles, prayer aligns you with God's will, and Number three, prayer reminds you of God's blessing. Verse 44, six times that servant reports, there's no clouds, Elijah, there's no rain, there's nothing. But on the seventh time, he goes back to look, things are different. A little cloud forming from the sea. Verse 45 says, in a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. Rain and water, we might not think of it this way, but we should. It all meant life. It all meant life. There would be crops again. There would be water to drink uh, once more. There would be daily provisions. Three years and six months, James records for us in chapter 5, that Israel had gone without rain. And here is God who sent fire to turn their hearts, and now he sends rain. God cares for their soul. He cares for their spiritual well-being, and he's mindful of their physical needs as well. Even though we dismiss rain as like a common thing, maybe not so much in Southern California, but we just think, oh, whatever, it's raining. Even though we do that, it's good for us to be reminded both the fire from heaven and the rain from heaven are equally miraculous. It's not easy for us to look at our lunch always as a blessing from God. (laughs) Oh, but we should. James 5 says, Elijah was a man, verse 17, with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Prayer of Elijah led to rain, and the rain caused the earth to produce food once more. God sent that rain, and God sent that blessing, and he is the one behind that gift. 
Even though we might view breakfast as common, it's still a gift from God, a gracious gift from God. And when we have the opportunity to pray for our daily bread, as Jesus instructs, and we get a chance to do that at least a couple times a day, we should be reminded that God is giving us such a great gift. We can view it as normal and almost expected, but it's not. It's a gift. It's a gift that God graciously gives. And it's likely why God instructs us to be those who are so thankful, to be those who are constantly filled with such gratitude as often as he does in the Bible. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, thankful, be full of gratitude. Over and over, God says that. And prayer, prayer has a way of reminding you of what's really going on. It's meant to, to offer you an opportunity to see what's happening and to thank the one who's truly in control. We're meant to see God's goodness in the spiritual, but also the physical. A lot to learn about prayer here. God graciously gives. So we should pray with such gratitude and thankfulness and God answers how he sees fit, even though we may not always understand it, but that should serve as a great comfort, knowing that God's perfect. He's not making a mistake. His answer is happening precisely as it should. Prayer reminds us that we humbly bow before the Lord, recognizing that he's in control. I hope you do want to pray more this year. Nothing more natural and more normal than for a young believer to talk to God. Should be something that you want to do. And if you aren't a believer, what a good reminder for you this morning to see that same God who sends fire and rain is really the the same God who wants to turn your heart back to him. The same God who wants to take care of your needs. The same God who can. Same God who's desiring you to come to him in faith. And if that's you this morning, my, my prayer is that you would take an opportunity even now, even this morning, to, to call out to God for help, to ask for his help to do that, to believe in what he's done for you both spiritually and to submit your life humbly to him as he provides for you physically. Great little lesson on prayer and we have much more with Elijah and we'll get back to him in a couple weeks. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. What a great reminder of just how prayer works and a great reminder to us of why Elijah prayed and why we should pray as well. Lord, we pray to you recognizing that you are God and we are not, recognizing that you are our creator and we are your creation. And Lord, I pray that you would help these young people to be more excited and more desirous to pray to you, to talk to you, Uh, Lord, to engage with you in prayer so beneficial, so helpful for us to humble ourselves in prayer, to align ourselves with your will. Father, to recognize your blessings that so overflow our life. 
Pray for these young people as they celebrate New Year's Eve tonight with their families. God, I ask that you would continue to draw them to you, to work in their lives through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.